The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the 2018 Brown County Library Comic Con. There you go. That's right. Get excited. Yeah. All right. So uh, this is, of course, uh, um, this is serious fun, as you might have been able to figure out from uh, the screen going on behind me. Um, my name is Dr. Brian Carr. I'm a communication information science professor at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Um, and this show is a show about the intersection between the academic and the quote unquote frivolous. Um, and we are, of course, live this week at the Brown County, uh, Brown County Library Comic Con. Uh, first off, a big thanks to the organizers for having us. Uh, everybody's been working really, really hard. Andrea Gillian, everybody else is working hard to put this on. Um, and I want to give a a big thanks to our pals at Stitcher for hosting the show. Thank you, Stitcher. So you always want to say thank you, Stitcher, with me. Thank you, Stitcher. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, my guest this week is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written novels, comics, more, and all kinds of great stuff for franchises like Star Wars, Star Trek, Iron Man, The Simpsons, basically everything I like, um, Mass Effect, and more, winning the 2014 Scribe Award for Star Wars Kenobi, which I assume is about one of my personal favorite Star Wars characters or otherwise just a really weird coincidence. Um, his work has also appeared as part of the Star Wars role-playing game, Scry Magazine, and of course, so, so much more. His new work is a special miniseries celebrating the 40th anniversary of Battlestar Galactica for Dynamite Comics. Please welcome John Jackson Miller. John, thank you for being on the show. Hey, glad to be here. Glad to be here. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. I want you to tell me the John Jackson Miller story. Okay, how did, <laughs> how did you get into, uh, like, what brought you here? Where'd you get started? Uh, well, I, I, uh, my mother was a grade school librarian, so uh, where other people's uh, mothers threw their comics away, Mine made me keep my comics in good condition and put them in order. So I still have everything now that I ever had as a kid. Uh, I started drawing and writing my own comics about the same time I started reading them, which was around age six. Uh, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, about three blocks from Elvis Presley's house. Uh, saw Star Wars at age nine. Uh, saw Battlestar Galactica at age ten. Uh, got into Star Trek more heavily uh, in that period where Star, Star Wars had gone away and uh, there wasn't anything for a while. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I w was very much into all of these things. Uh, uh, was a journalist in college, uh, got a graduate degree in Soviet studies. I would have gone for the doctorate in that, but the Soviet Union collapsed on my dissertation. So uh, unfortunately, that was, uh, that was not, to, not to go any further. Yeah. Uh, but um, after working for a year uh, back in Memphis on a line of lumber magazines as editor, and let me tell you about lumber, uh, the industry, it's not as glamorous as you've heard. Sure. Uh, I've heard that the people who work in the lumber industry are quite wooden. Uh, indeed, indeed. And, and we didn't practice that. That's very good. Uh, uh, Thank you, sir. Uh, we need a, a drummer out here yeah. with uh, the rim shot. I forgot that this year. Uh, next year, next year. But, uh, but anyway, uh, after I did that, it was actually about 25 years ago this weekend that I read an ad in a weekly newspaper that I used to get called uh, Comics Buyer's Guide, uh, which was published in Iola, Wisconsin, in Wapaka County. Uh, by Don and Maggie Thompson were the editors. Uh, they had always sort of been you know, kind of my gurus in comics for years. Uh, and uh, I snuck out and did a job interview up here a uh, Halloween weekend uh, in, uh, in 1993. Uh, got the job, loaded up the truck, and uh, moved to Wapaka County. Uh, and so I will have been here uh, 25 years in November. Wow. Uh, I worked uh, as the editor of the trade magazine for the comics industry for the first uh, you know, decade or so that I was there. I also ended up uh, being the editorial director for Comics Buyer's Guide and eventually for the entire location in Iola. Uh, but uh, at the same time that I was uh, editing magazines and books about comics and games, as you mentioned, Scry Magazine, mm -hmm. uh, I was actually also interacting with people in the comics business uh, somebody at Marvel that I knew said, uh, this is about uh, 15 years ago, uh, hey, uh, you seem to know how to write and hit a deadline. Mm -hmm. uh, would you like to actually you know, pitch for one of our books? 
Uh, and I wrote uh, a uh, sort of my demo reel story for um, a character that uh, is a uh, supporting character in Iron Man. He was the, uh, the, the Crimson Dynamo. He was sort of the Soviet Union's version of Iron Man. Uh, and of course, the funny thing with that is that uh, I was able to finally use all that stuff back in Soviet studies back in the day. Uh, you know, you, you waste nothing. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I just didn't imagine that that was how I was going to use it. Uh, that led to a run on Iron Man. Uh, that was something that turned out to be you know, pretty momentous because uh, in addition to getting me in the door with Star Wars, um, one of the characters that I uh, created in that Iron Man storyline, where I made him Secretary of Defense for a year, uh, wound up in the first two Iron Man movies. And that was cool. And so last year I contacted Marvel and said, hey, I noticed that my character appeared. And I also noticed that my villain from my storyline is your villain in Ant-Man and the Wasp. <laughs> and uh, so if you actually get the DVD when it comes out here in a few weeks, you will see I'm in the credits. Uh, at the end, they flew my wife and me out to Hollywood for the uh, premiere. And we got to walk the red carpet and uh, uh, you know, be in the, the Grumman's Chinese Theater, mm -hmm. which has the world's largest IMAX screen. We were assigned in the second row of seats. Wow. And, and I can tell you, it's probably really good back you know, 10 or 12 uh, rows back, uh, but uh, where we were, it was uh, a bit like that. But that was very cool because, again, my artist, uh, who's from Argentina, uh, they flew him in as well, and he, he was sitting right next to me, and it, it, was, it was a delight. So, uh, and, and again, that led to me writing for Star Wars. I wrote Star Wars comics, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Star Wars comics led to Star Wars novels. Star Wars novels led to Star, Tre uh, Star Trek novels. Uh, and then just ever since then, I've kind of been strip mining my childhood for a living, uh, writing for different franchises. Well, yeah, and you've written for a lot, in fact. I'm going to put a couple of them up here on the screen behind us. There we go. Okay, so like I said, you have written um, for just numerous different uh, companies, numerous different products. You've done your own work. But I want to start off by talking some of the licensed work you've done, because I find this really fascinating. Um, when you, What attracts you to doing this kind of work? Like, Is there a particular universe you're really fond of writing for? Uh, you know, I, I found that unless you're really excited about writing in the universe, you mm -hmm. can't fake it. Uh, the fans will figure it out. Uh, you know, they, they, ought to, they ought to know right away whether or not you've got the credentials. And one of the things that I, I've done, I've, I do a um, slideshow series, various seminars that I've done at Star Wars events and Star Trek events talking about license uh, writing. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've is, is one of my sections in there is talking about how uh, a first-time mistake or a rookie mistake that people who are working in these franchises will do is they'll try to establish right away their credentials. Mm -hmm. They'll try to try to establish, hey, I know this universe. Hey, I know these characters. Hey, I know what this is about. And so, you know, they'll find a way to, you know, work in, uh, that looks, uh, that, that sky looks like the color of Romulan ale or mm -hmm. something like that. And it often gets very stilted if you do it frequently because it's sort of like you're name checking what's in the world. Right. It's more important that you, um, you know, just understand what the feel of a Star Wars story is, what the feel of a Star Trek story is, and you fill in those little details later. Mm -hmm. uh, you you don't want to uh, you know, just sort of overdo that sort of thing. The other thing you try to avoid is uh, leaving your imprint on the universe. Uh, one of my chapters in the, uh, in the uh, seminar is uh, talking about how you know, I treat Star Wars as a national park or I treat Star Trek as a national park, whatever the franchise is, because you want to leave it the way you found it. Uh, you might add something to make it a little nicer or clean up a little bit of garbage here or there, mm -hmm. but you definitely pack out what you bring in. Uh, and you don't leave a, a, a lot of uh, debris around because it's going to be stu stuff that the next writer is going to have to deal with. Uh, and, you know, again, rookie mistakes would be somebody coming along and saying, hey, I've got this great Star Wars story. The whole idea is that Luke and Leia, they were actually two kids out of triplets. And there's a third kid running around out there. And it's, well, that doesn't work. That's too much. That's, uh, that's messing with the universe in ways that you shouldn't. And so, um, you know, I will have stories like, uh, Kenobi, which is uh, the Scribe Award winner for that year, as you mentioned. Uh, this is about Obi-Wan Kenobi's first month on Tatooine. 
but it really only takes place over maybe 36 hours that we mm-hmm. see. So uh, it is. Uh, it has a limited footprint, and uh, again, you know that that makes it easy because you you don't want to leave a lot of story threads hanging out there or make a lot of changes that some other writer is going to have to cope with because mm-hmm. often that writer might be you know even you I mean you, you might you might mm-hmm. you might be the next person and you you have you're having to deal with these problems that you created right and you definitely see that a lot in comics where they'll make like a fundamental shift in a character and then like the next writers have to spend the next year or so trying to rehabilitate that character um, and sometimes it's faster I mean my sure. my Iron Man year was erased in about one page right uh, so <laughs> but you know this is the thing it's comics that's what happens uh, we have alternate universes we have a, a lot of different thing like things like that and uh, you know it would be very easy for somebody to come along and reinstate things just like that as well right so uh, it's it's a it's a shared universe as we say and I just try to make sure that you know when, when I'm writing for something like that I uh, I respect the brand I respect the right. license and I try to tell a good story that feels like it belongs in the universe I love that metaphor of these properties as national parks it's almost like you're a writer or something um, uh, one thing I want to ask you about um, also along those lines is that, you know, you're dealing with companies that have very kind of a short leash on a lot of their properties, right? They have a very specific vision, a very specific idea of what they want Iron Man or Obi-Wan Kenobi or whoever to be. Um, what is a meeting with like these big with these big wigs who are in charge of this material like? Are, have there ever been things like you say, I want to do this, but they're like, no, we don't want you to do that. Or um, like what are there interesting stories that come out of that? Yeah, sometimes there are meetings. Uh, I have actually physically been to Lucasfilm. Uh, at the same time, there are also a lot of situations where you never meet anybody from uh, the actual uh, property. You're dealing with editors who are working for companies that have paid for a license for this mm-hmm. particular uh, project. And so you might see notes that come in from the franchise people, uh, or you might not. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it has to do with how active the franchise is at any one time. I won't get into Star Wars now because I know you have a question about I do, that later. I do, yeah. uh, but again, for example, Star Trek. Uh, Star Trek, uh, I wrote the 50th anniversary trilogy, which was uh, a 300,000 word storyline that takes place over three months of time in the Star Trek universe. Uh, and you know, as far as we're concerned, the stories kept going after the last Next Generation movie. Uh, my storyline takes place over three months in 2386, which is several years after the end of Star Trek Nemesis. Uh, and uh, it was one of those things where, because there wasn't anything else coming out that was going to land in that time frame from the Star Trek people, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't a lot for me to collide with. So I had a lot of freedom in terms of what I could write about and where I could go. Uh, and I just had to you know, make sure that I didn't kill any characters right. or anything that they, they didn't want. Now, of course, we found out that uh, a, a friend of mine, Kirsten Beyer, one of the other authors on the Star Trek novel line, she has developed the new Captain Picard series mm-hmm. that, is, uh, that is now in development. And we just, oh, we just saw a story made for that. The streaming one, right? The streaming one, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they'll all be streaming. There, there won't be regular TV in about 10 years. Right, so no. it, 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 let's just, we, we got to get used to that. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, but again, it, it, it's one of those things where if I were doing it with that TV show coming up, it would be a much different situation right. because they would be saying probably uh, other things you have to be concerned about. Um, you know, there are also licenses which are uh, not necessarily active anymore. Battlestar Galactica is one where uh, the TV show went off in 1979. Uh, there was uh, a sequel TV series that people pretend not to remember, uh, which is probably a good thing. Uh, and then there was a, ser- a series in 2003 that was completely unrelated, but just used the same characters and names and things like that. Um, but we don't deal with that either. So I've been very free to do whatever I want with this because, again, we're not colliding with anything that's active. Uh, the most complicated stuff is something that either involves a TV show or movie that is in production and not done yet. Right. Or video games. <laughs> The video game stuff is hard because uh, in the case of Mass Effect, uh, that particular omnibus, which I have uh, for sale downstairs, as well as all of this stuff is, is for sale down there, uh, the Mass Effect uh, series is, uh, I, I co-wrote that with the uh, lead, lead writer on the video games. And so uh, the first arc I did was in between the first two Mass Effect games. 
the second arc had to do with the, the origin of one of the main characters. The third arc took place between the second and the third games. And those games were still being designed while I was writing them. Mm-hmm. So a variety of things were changing while I was working on them. Uh, and uh, again, here, this is Halo, the Rise of Atriox. That's my latest uh, hardcover, uh, uh, latest graphic novel. This ties in with the Halo Wars 2 game. Again, I was working with, uh, and it's a different situation than with a movie, because with a movie, you're usually not working with the creators of the movie. You're working with somebody in licensing or in the franchise with the studio. With the video games, you're actually working with the people who are designing and creating the video games. So you will get notes back Mm -hmm. from the people who are actually working at the time on the game. And sometimes they'll work part of your story into their game. But they also might come back and say, oh, by the way, this whole page has to go. Because this character no longer exists or something like Mm -hmm. that. And so, uh, you know, this is just all... You know, it's uh, all I ever say is, you know, it's not my first rodeo. I've, I've, I haven't seen it all yet, but I, I've seen a lot. Well, I find it interesting too because, uh, you know, bring it Mass Effect, especially that's a game series that notoriously changed its ending, um, and uh, actually patched in a new one because fans complained, and also had to incl- incor- uh, incorporate all these like player choice elements and all that. So I can only imagine that just made things even more difficult. Mass Effect was Mass Effect was a mess to write in the sense that they did have this conceit that they started with, mm-hmm. that your choices in the game, mm-hmm. in, in, in the first game, would be carried on to the second and would be carried on to the third. What that meant was that any characters who died in your game would be dead as of the third game. Well, all that meant was that for me, writing the book that took place in between the second and the third game, we could not mention anybody who might be dead or might be alive from the first two games. Um, it is, you know, it, 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 it's something where they use the technology to be able to make that a rich experience for the player. I will say, and this is probably leans into, you know, what you, what you teach about in terms of, in terms of game writing. Uh, I do believe it is a mistake for the uh, storyteller to surrender that much control uh, because in the end, uh, this is not theater in the round. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the end, this is not a group fantasy or a group story. In the end, you know, there has to be one ending to the story. Right. If you intend to continue writing stories. Yeah, and I mean, that's, and you find that a lot with games that are branching storylines. Eventually, they all come back to simple, like, kind of points that are just uh, going to play out no matter what you do in the other scenes because and, it's impossible to write otherwise. And this is a problem for game designers because in game design, uh, this is called, or at least in my day, it was called, uh, this, this is called using a plot hammer, mm-hmm. which is you're forcing everything to the same resolution. Well, that undermines the whole conceit that you've developed to that point that, hey, this is your world and it's how you create it. And uh, in Mass Effect is the most famous example, I think, of where they got tied up in mm-hmm. terms of, uh, uh, you know, w- w- the, they, they had made it such a interactive experience with the players mm-hmm. that when the players did not get the ending that they wanted, they demanded a new one. Yep. And so they, they got that. Uh, again, that's not like that's any sort of big compromise or anything because Hollywood changes the endings of movies and TV mm-hmm. shows all the time. Uh, I mean, heck, uh, uh, Charles Dickens changed the ending of uh, Great Expectations after public outcry because the guy didn't get the girl in the original ending. Yeah, and, and uh, Conan Doyle also brought back Sherlock Holmes that's after right. pretty definitively killing him off. That's too, right. So, so, so again, it, this has always been an interactive kind of thing. Uh, Shakespeare brought uh, brought uh, a character back to life for another play. Right. Uh, so uh, Falstaff. So uh, it, it, it's something where uh, anytime you're doing a series, you're always going to have some interaction coming from the readers, from the gamers, from whoever it is. It's just as a storytelling thing, there really needs to be one ending. Right. And that kind of runs up against the problem here. Yeah. So uh, I do want to ask you, because I could talk to you about video game writing all day. Like, I might just have to have you come back again at some point. Um, but uh, I want to talk about uh, kind of the uh, big, uh, well, certainly something that's very well represented on the table in front of you and just sort of well represent, uh, represented in the sort of cultural 
mind, uh, mindscape at, at the same time. Well, I'm having a hard time talking today. Um, it's Star Wars. I want to talk about Star Wars. Yeah. Um, and uh, Star Wars is a really interesting place because Star Wars is a company, uh, you know, Lucasfilm was kind of independent, sort of operating its own sort of, uh, on its own. Uh, didn't have to answer anybody for story reasons. George Lucas kind of just did whatever he wanted. But then uh, I think it was 2011, right? Um, 2012. Uh, was it 2011, 2012? I can't remember. Um, but anyway, Disney swoops in. 2012. 2012, yeah. Disney yeah, swoops so, uh, in. October 29th, 2012. Okay, yeah. So... So they swoop in, they buy out uh, Lucasfilm, uh, and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, all of these novels, all of these comics, everything that has been made to kind of like fill in some of the backstory, we're just going to pretend that none of that happened. We're still going to sell it. Like we're still going to put it out there, but like it is no longer part of canon. It is we have taken away the canonicity of it. Um, yes and no. Yes. Okay. So we'll get into that in a second. But of course, you wrote several things in that space. I, I wrote the first thing in that space. And the first thing in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, what's your take on that? Like, yeah. what is? Uh, yeah, was, you know, how do you feel about this whole scenario? And if there's a different mentality at Lucasfilm, I now? was uh, I was intimately involved sure. uh, because I, I I had written the Kenobi novel and I was at New York Comic Con. Uh, it, it released 2013, so I was at New York Comic Con, I guess, uh, five years ago. Uh, and uh, I began discussions with them about, uh, the sale had just gone through, mm -hmm. and I began discussions with them about writing another novel, which would tie in with the Rebels TV series. And I have this book downstairs, it's called A New Dawn, and uh, it is, uh, it's a prequel to the Rebels TV series. It's how the two main characters met. And for this, I was working with the uh, executive producers of the TV show, and uh, I uh, you know, had conference calls. I got to see everything. I was working very closely with them uh, because my book was going to come out before the TV show launched. And so we had to make sure that all the characters sounded right, even though I had never heard the characters. Uh, and what I did not know at the time was that they were deciding that this was the, the Lucasfilm story group, is what they called it. Uh, they basically created a roundtable of people out there whose job it was to manage uh, the Star Wars universe in all of its licensed incarnations. As well, uh, the idea being to make sure that the novels and the comics and the games and the video games and the backs of action figure cards all correctly interacted with and reflected what was happening in the movies, in the cartoons, uh, in the live action TV shows, in whatever else they intended to do. And uh, the idea was that whereas in the past what we had was called the expanded universe, it was primarily one way. Right. Things would come from the movies and the TV shows, funnel into what we were doing, occasionally things that we had come up with would pipe back into the movies or the TV shows. But famously, George Lucas was going to do what George Lucas was going to do. And so if he decided he was going to, for example, return to Star Wars, which nobody expected, and do a cartoon series called The Clone Wars, he had to be able to rewrite a variety of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, or he wanted to be able to, and did so. Um, this caused a, a little bit of uh, complication for those of us working in the universe, because suddenly we had two versions of where the Mandalorians came from, where various other things uh, happened. Um, they didn't want to have that happen going forward once they were doing the Star Wars uh, you know, prequels, uh, sequel trilogy. Uh, and so I was actually two-thirds of the way through this book, and they said, we need you to come to Lucasfilm. Don't tell anybody. And so I, I got on a plane. Uh, I, I'm met in the limo by Timothy Zahn, who is uh, the, the guy who uh, brought Star Wars back so, to Star Wars That's a hell Wars of a novels. guy just to be uh, greeted by in the limo. Well, he's in the, he was in the back of the limo. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I promptly got him lost on the way to the, uh, on the, way to the uh, facility. I, I'd been to Lucasfilm before because I wrote the adaptation of the Indiana Jones movie that came out a few years ago. Uh, but uh, but we, they had us there to do a video, which you can find on YouTube, where we announced that Star Wars A New Dawn, which is what we chose to call it, reflecting the fact that it's the new first step in the new era of continuity, or really what they call it is, it's just the canon. Mm -hmm. It's not that the other stuff um, left continuity. It never was in continuity. However, it still exists as legends. 
and the idea with the Legends banner is that, and in fact, this, is, this was uh, one of the first books to get the Legends banner when it went into reprint. Uh, the idea with Legends is Legends might be true. They might be false. They might be partially true. From a certain point of view. From a certain point of view. And the, the idea simply is that, uh, well, what, what do we know about Robin Hood? What do we know about King Arthur? Were they real people? Were they not? You know, do they influence us anyway? Well, they still do. Uh, and so the idea has been going forward that, you know, this material still hasn't, it hasn't been overwritten. It just is there for inspiration. It's the same universe, the same planets, the same species, the same galaxy, uh, the same corporation names. Uh, yeah, immediately when New Dawn came out, and that was the first book in this new era, uh, you know, people realized that I was uh, calling upon uh, stories that I had written for uh, Knights of the Old Republic, for, uh, which is another comic series I did, uh, for locations and for chemical names and things like that. Um, and if they were to decide tomorrow, we're going to wave a wand over Kenobi or Knight Errant or uh, one of the other previous Legends books and make it official canon in part or in whole, they are free to do that. And mm. so, um, again, the way that I put it is a story is about more than just how it's connected to other stories. And uh, the fact that a comic book or novel or video game or movie is or is not in official continuity should not matter. Uh, you know, I've, I have thousands of comic books. A fraction of that total are in current continuity now. I think the comics fans understood the yep. notion of this reboot, if that's what it was. How many crises have we had at this yeah, point? Yeah, but, uh, but because we can, uh, we can keep multiple things in mind at the same time. I mm -hmm. remember talking with a friend of mine who is uh, at Lucasfilm before all this happened. We were talking about how various other franchises handle things. Uh, the James Bond movie franchise presumes that everything happened to all the previous James Bonds that you saw on screen. Uh, in Skyfall, the Aston Martin V is, is actually there with the, uh, with the machine gun cannon and everything. Even though, obviously, uh, Daniel Craig was not you know, playing golf in the 1960s with, uh, with Goldfinger, uh, <laughs> where, where that car came from. Uh, the idea is simply that it's all kind of, 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 a, of a piece, sort of. Sure. And uh, where, where people get into trouble, and I know people who do this diligently, and I've referred to their work, is where they try to s shove everything into a timeline. Mm -hmm. And there are people who have put all the Star Wars materials into timelines and Star Trek and other things. And it is very helpful in a number of regards. It's just if you're going to say exactly when this adventure happened relative to the next one, relative to the next one, relative to the next one, mm -hmm. then you start creating those possible obstacles that I right. talked about earlier. And also, it's interesting because one of the other properties you wrote for that um, we don't really think about doing this, but it absolutely does, is The Simpsons, right? Bart Simpson was born in 2008 now. Like, that's when he was born. Um, but he also is in the same series referring to Cool Modi back in the 90s, right? So, like, it's, it, it just kind of, it's one of those things, like, you just sort of deal with when you're dealing with any sort of, the, any sort of property that just lasts this long. The very first uh, thing I faced was when I was writing that Crimson Dynamo character. Mm -hmm. He was created... Uh, by Stan Lee in Iron Man in, 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 in an Iron Man story in 1963, uh, and Nikita Khrushchev is actually in the panel, giving him the job. Well, you know now Tony Stark's uh, origin story has been moved from the Vietnam War up through the Gulf War, up through Afghanistan, and is now just some random war on terror moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that they have had to keep pushing forward. Uh, and when I was doing Crimson Dynamo, I moved it from... I found a way to make everything true. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to work Tony Stark's father into it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I ended up making it instead of uh, Khrushchev, it was Andropov, the, the next to last guy. Or, or, no, or no, it was Chernyanko. That was Chernyanko, that's right. Uh, so we're talking, I moved it from 1963 to 1984. Uh, and the computers that they were using were instead of, you know, these big 
uh, the real, the, the real, real, real yeah. I mean, the guy was actually using a Commodore right. uh, in in Russia to try to to you know design this thing. Uh, but even again, that has now been overtaken mm-hmm. uh, by time. Uh, the important thing is not what year these things happened in, unless unless you're doing something as they do seem to be doing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, mm-hmm. where they are nailing things down to specific moments in time. Right. Um, I, the, the important thing is more uh, what order the stories go in. Sure. What order should I read these comics in? Uh, you know, uh, Spider-Man has been in high school or has been in college for 20 years at a time, depending on who's writing and whatever. The He's got to get it together. Just got to graduate. Just got to well, push through. But the thing is, he graduated college uh, in 1978, I think. Right. And again, uh, they... they have looked at various ways of rolling things back. Mm-hmm. And the important thing, I think, instead, is not what order to tell the stories in, or rather what, what, what year they happen. It's what order to read the stories in. Right. And also just, like, I think in some ways, especially with Spider-Man, like, is this true to the character? Like, does this seem plausible exactly. for the character? Like, you know, I love the fact that eventually he, you know, got married. He became a teacher. You know, that kind of stuff. And then they decided to undo all of that because, well, like, because it was not true to the character. But, like, it absolutely is because it's still, it's, it's, it just gets weird. Like, uh, the the yeah. Spider-Man problem was simply a matter, uh, I see of the Spider-Man I, shirt I, here today, yes. Uh, <laughs> the Spider-Man problem was simply that Stan Lee decided in 1986, wouldn't it be cool if Spider-Man got married? married right uh to a to a character that he wasn't actually dating at the time which was a problem mm-hmm. uh because he was dating mary jane back in the early 70s and they had broken up after she left him at the altar uh but uh but they and they did a thing where they got married in yankee stadium uh actually in real life mm-hmm. or maybe it was met stadium i can't remember what it was anyway uh but it ended up causing a problem for writers in the 1990s because all of the adolescent kids who had identified with Peter Parker, mm-hmm. the teenager or the unmarried college student, uh, were dealing now with Peter Parker in married life. Right. And so they, they said, well, can we fix this by making him a clone uh, of the original <laughs> Spider-Man? And that, uh, that, that was a story arc that lasted for about two years and was... It ex- felt like 40. Like. It <laughs> felt like 40, and yeah, I was there. Oh, a disaster. Uh, and, uh, well, but again, the, 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 but the, the, the notion at the base of it was... This what you're now seeing in the comics is significantly off model mm-hmm. from the Spider-Man that you were seeing in the cartoon series. Right. And again, you know, when you make these kinds of decisions for these characters, uh, it gets to be tumultuous. Uh, mm-hmm. We just had an event here this summer with Batman where he and Catwoman were going to get married in the comics. Yep. Or maybe they were never going to get married, but whatever it was, it was going to be something they were going to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had Superman get married in the 1990s. Uh, again, tying in with a TV show, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they state as uh, Superman still is married in the comics. Yeah, I think they even uh, even as a son in current continuity too. Uh, but again, it just sort of depends on how much different do you want these characters to be from the iconic versions, or what's on the TV screen right. or the movie screen when people arrive and pick it up. Right. So. And that's and I think that's a really really good point when you when you talk about these kind of properties. It's like one of the overarching things is that these are part of a larger sort of machine, yep. and the machine has to all be operating the same. It's like, for example, like why Star Lord looks the way he does in the comics now is because people had never heard of Star Lord until they saw the movie. So okay, we're just going to pretend everything with Star Lord didn't happen in the comics, and now he's just Chris Pratt, which I think is actually better for that character. But <laughs> it's rare that it actually sort of works out that cleanly. Um, so I, w- I want to talk about some other stuff too, um, and, and maybe this, we can get to the process a little bit here. Um, you know. On your, uh, you've written for comics, you've written for prose, and uh, how does the writing process kind of differ, or does it differ between that? Like, how do you sort of sit down and say, okay, I'm writing a comic, here's what I do. I'm writing a novel, here's what I do. Well, obviously, if uh, I'm writing a, a novel, uh, I'm behind the camera. Mm-hmm. I'm actually having to describe everything. I'm the costume director, I'm, I'm the set designer, I'm the art director. Uh, everything about what you know about what these characters look like comes from me. Uh, if I'm doing a comic, uh, I'm giving, uh, it, it is a script. I'm doing a, uh, an event downstairs uh, at 12.45 where I actually am gonna go through the steps of doing a comic script and you'll see what one looks like. Uh, and uh, you'll see this very much like a TV or a movie script where I'm giving broad directions to the, the, uh, the talented people who are doing the art. 
and uh, very frequently they will add things uh, in the background or whatever that will make it far different or far better than I ever would have imagined. And a lot of the load on me is, is, is off. On the other hand, um, one of the things that's nice about doing uh, uh, novels is you can significantly get more into the internal dialogue of the characters. Uh, one of the things that vanished 20 years ago in comics is something called the thought balloon. Uh, you used to be able to see the thoughts of characters uh, as they were fighting or whatever, and they realized that didn't look very realistic. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually killed by a man named Frank Miller, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, did a Batman storyline where he got rid of all of the uh, thought balloons, and you might have uh, internal captions in caption boxes where the character is thinking. Right. Uh, but well, they, in general, all monologue heavy, like the, the thought bubble is just taking a different form. Cause like if you read dark Knight yeah. returns, it's literally just, here's what Batman's thinking yeah, at every step of the way. But uh, again, why it was that way before was in part because, uh, the, the art pages they were working with were bigger. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also, uh, they were working in a specific method that gave the writer a chance to actually really heavy duty, go in there and, uh, add a lot to what the artist was doing. Uh, and again, I'll talk about that in the panel. But one of the things that we found is that, for example, a Stanley Spider-Man comic book in 1964 has about 6,000 words in it. Uh, the same Spider-Man comic book from another writer, uh, we did a count 40 years later, uh, and it only had about 1,700 words in it. So where did they all go? Uh, it is fewer panels per page, and word balloons are gone. And, and omniscient narrators are also just about dead, uh, where it's, you know, the person, the, the, the narrator who's saying what's actually happening here. Uh, they realize that comics are a visual medium and that, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we need to show and not tell. Yeah. And, and, and it makes sense, too, especially when you get like, you know, because uh, I think one of the things that sort of is a hallmark of the comics industry is it's about trying to figure out how do we get people to actually buy comics? How do we get people to actually read them? And the one thing they have over a lot of other media is they do have this like really nice, beautiful art they can work with. Oh, and yeah. So, you know, the paper gets glossier, the pages get bigger. And you, oh, you, yeah. you, if you can see uh, right here, like, let I me mean, look at the art here. Like, it's mostly yes. art. Um, and I well, think that comics used to be printed on toilet paper. Right. Exactly. And so, I mean, it was it was <laughs> it really was. Comics were created as a way for newspapers to keep the presses rolling on the mm -hmm. weekend. Uh, and and that, that was in the 1930s. And, you know, this is glossy mm -hmm. magazine paper, full bleed out to the outside. Uh, and, you know, they're in, in, you know, sometimes they're square bound. Uh, and these are just regular comics. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, this is, this is a, 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 it's a, we're taking advantage of the format right. in ways that we didn't before. Of course, now we're uh, kind of moving toward a different format with digital comics. Um, and, and how do you think that's kind of changing this, or is it having much of an impact at um, all? I do a website called Comicron.com where this follows a lot of the work that I did when I was at uh, Krause Publications, where uh, I, 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 it's, all the, it's all the sales charts for the business going back to the 1960s. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that we do is we put out a report every year saying how much money is coming from print and everything else. Digital right now is about 10, 12% of the business. Um, it's not taking anything away from actual print, which is mm -hmm. what's good. Uh, it, it seems to be going to a specific kind of reader that just doesn't want to have a mountain of comic books in their home, uh, like I do. Right. Uh, but one of the ways that it's changed is uh, changed what we do uh, is that just as these trade paperbacks or hardcovers have changed the way that individual issues are told, because we both are writing single issues that have to stand as magazines, but also stand as chapters of a larger volume. Uh, it has also changed, uh, you know, digital has changed the way that we write as well, because um, I will be less likely to do a page like this, which is a double page spread, because that double page spread will not render properly if somebody is putting mm -hmm. it on their device. Uh, you, got, you gotta like flip it around. They'll flip it around. Oh, I hate it. In this, per in this particular case, they, they put it in like that. Uh, however, you can't tell unless you actually really look at it. Mm -hmm. But I have written it such that there is no narration or no events that take place on the upper right-hand side of the page that you need to know about before you get to the lower left. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea being that if you are using a device where you're not seeing the spread, but you're seeing just the left page or just the right page, uh, you'll be able to read it in order. Yeah. 
So it, it, it's it's just a it's a it's a it's a tricky little thing. That's a really elegant solution, though, because when I, I read a lot of digital comics, and um, you know, a lot of it's like, okay, I'm I'm reading and everything's going great when it's just a single page, but as soon as we get to those spreads, I gotta like flip it around or worse, double tap on the screen. I'll be like, okay, here's this part, here's this part, here's this part. Yeah. And so this beautiful art is all kind of chopped up into little sequential panels. Well, and it's 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 rough. The 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 day that the iPad came out mm -hmm. uh, in 2010. Uh, people were saying this. This may find this may finally be the thing that will actually uh, uh, you know uh, allow allow digital comics to work mm -hmm. uh, because before that the it, they just been on computer screens and they were horrible. Right. Uh, and I, the day that it came out, I said, you know, it's still not going to replace comics, and I'll tell you why. The number one comic book that week was uh, an issue of uh, uh, it was a Green Lantern storyline called uh, Blackest Night. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was the final issue of that series, and it had a quadruple page spread. I remember It had that, yeah. gatefold in the middle. Yeah. So there was no way for any iPad to represent that. Uh, Unless you bought like four of them and put them side by side, yeah, which I'm sure would Apple work. would love. So, uh, and what we found over the next seven years is that every year that digital sales went up, print sales also went up. So it's uh, it, it uh, that's very heartening. Yeah. And uh, it's it's. Uh, you think it might be helping getting people uh, into the store and, and yeah. And, well, and they, there and there are too. many fewer stores than there were in the in the boom times of the early '90s, where we had kind of a real estate bubble. Mm -hmm. Again, this gets in the business side of sure. things. It's on Comicron, and I won't get into it too much. But uh, yeah, getting the comics to where people are is key. Mm -hmm. and so let's talk about one of those comics, actually. Uh, you've been talking kind of about this, but I want to hear a little bit more about your Battlestar Galactica comic. Um, so this is a franchise, I'm going to be completely honest with you, I am not super familiar with. I, know I have never seen that cover yet. No, really? Yeah. That's yeah this is apparently, these are, the, uh, these are the first couple issues. I went on yeah, uh, yeah, previews is, and I found them. So These arrived yesterday from, uh, from Dynamite Comics in my house. Uh, four different covers for issue zero. Uh, these don't come out until a Wednesday. They will be at uh, your local comic shop here. I'm also doing an event uh, at Powers Comics on the 29th where I have cases of these. So you'll be able to uh, get them. The, the first issue is actually 35 cents uh, because Battlestar Galactica came out 40 years ago mm -hmm. and the first Galactica comic was 40, uh, was 35 cents. Oh. And in fact, we, we kind of, we, I'm sorry, we kind of continue with the, uh, the conceit here because... Uh, you know, the, the cover says 399 cents. <laughs> this is the original trade dress or the, the logo that Marvel used in the 1970s when, the, when they did these comics. Uh, Battlestar Galactica uh, came out from a, a producer named Glenn Larson, uh, who was uh, big in television at the time. Uh, it, this was right, it came out the year after Star Wars did. Uh, he managed to have uh, the biggest budget anybody had ever had for a TV series at the time. Uh, he had uh, several special effects people from, uh, from Star Wars, including John Dykstra. Uh, there is a lot of money on the screen. There is star power on the screen in the form of Lorne Green, who had done Bonanza. Uh, and then the storyline is uh, basically one of uh, Exodus. It is, uh, the, you know, humans began far out in space. Uh, they are massacred by a robotic legion. Uh, and, uh, you know, we sort of have this, uh, you know, wagon train uh, leaving the, uh, the, the human planets, heading for what they hope will be Earth. Uh, and this was all, um, you know, a, a, a combination of Glenn Larson's, uh, you know, his, his own Mormon readings. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also uh, uh, there was a, a famous book in the 1970s called Chariots uh, of the Gods mm -hmm. uh, about, uh, you know, did the Egyptians come from UFOs? Did the, did the Mayans and the Toltecs, uh, did, did, did everybody come from uh, another planet? Uh, and so he kind of built into that as well. Uh, the series uh, was uh, fun for kids. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a little bit more daunting for adults. Mm -hmm. uh, it was so expensive that they had to kind of, uh, you know, use the uh, the universal back lot for a bunch of different uh, planets that they went to. It t it turned out to be more Planet of the Week uh, kind mm -hmm. of stuff. I I refer to it as the the last uh, the last. The last unaired season of Baba Black Sheep, uh, or Black Sheep Squadron, which was another series that Universal did, where it was fighter pilots going from mm -hmm. island to island to island. Well, this was 
fighter pilots going from planet to planet to planet. And in fact, they had the same script director. They had the same script editor writing a lot of the scripts. Uh, you can see this series actually tonight. Uh, Green Bay has it on, uh, I think it's, uh, it's either MeTV or Antenna TV. It's one of the sideband channels, and it's been airing, I think, at 10 or 11. Cool. Along with Buck Rogers, which is the series that he put on the next year after Battlestar Galactica failed. Right. Uh, but again, the series did fail, uh, but people still loved the stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, Battlestar Galactica came back to life. Uh, in the early 2000s on Sci-Fi Channel with a reimagined version of the series. Um, They approached me to do something for the 40th anniversary, so our story ties in with the original characters, the original actors, who are all still going around appearing at events. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, and, uh, basically, I decided to write mine as if the series was never canceled. Sure. So So if uh, if I'm interested in this, which I am, um, and I've never seen the show, is this something I just pick up off the shelf and just get into and follow just fine? Robots chasing humans. You're done. All right, cool. I'm sold. That, that was that was easy. Um, so there's a lot of other stuff I want to talk about, but I also we have a lot of folks who are here. They've been listening intently, and I want to if it's if it's cool with you, um, can I open up the floor to some questions? I may want to have a question. Uh, we actually have a microphone up there um, uh, for you guys to talk into. So if you have any questions for John Jackson Miller about writing, uh, about his work, anything at all, please feel free to come up and uh, ask them. All right, come on up. I know this guy. Hi, Regan. He was, he was just hey, on the man. show last week. Yeah. So, you know, I want to go back to something that you started with that I thought was fascinating, where you said, especially in Ant-Man and Wasp and in some of the other characters, uh, shows, they, they used your characters. Yeah. Now, you don't, how far ahead do you know that? And, I mean, I'm hoping they cut you a big chunk of royalties <laughs> for that. But I was, I was wondering how that worked. Well, I, it- I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't talk about the money. Uh, uh, but I, I will say that it, it is a much different world than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago in terms of the creators getting recognized. Uh, you know, when I went to that, uh, that Hollywood screening mm-hmm. uh, for, the, for the premiere, our entire row was people I knew from Marvel Comics, uh, it was, it, it, or from or from the business, because again, it was people that that had touched the the franchise in various places. Uh, you know, I think I think Hollywood understands now that uh, you know this stuff comes from somewhere. Somebody had to create these things. Uh, you know, in the 1970s, it took a huge letter writing campaign to get uh, you know, uh, Siegel and Schuster, the creators of Superman, their names into the right. Superman movie, and to get them a small amount of money back then. Uh, this is all changing, and certainly I, I think the, uh, the, you know, the publishers, the film studios, the publishers are now owned by the film studios. That's a major difference from what it was in the past. You know, Marvel in the 1960s was owned by a chemical corporation. Uh, I mean, it was it was not it was not something where it was part of a a Hollywood studio or anything that was like a creative franchise. So back then, they were not thinking about things like, uh, are we going to make sure that you know our creators are recognized down the line? However, Marvel at the time was still ahead of DC in that they put the character they 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 they, they put the uh, the artists' names you know right up front, and then they were very early to get the names on the cover. So uh, uh, again, it's 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 something where uh, you know it, it's it, you know, now we're in a world where these comics are not just in and of themselves the beginning and ending, um, and uh, you know even the comics themselves. It used to be they'd be on the shelf for a few weeks, they'd be gone. You'd the only way you'd find them again was at a comic shop or at a convention. Um, now we have the graphic novels, the keeping them in print forever. And so all of my Star Wars comics, for example, that I did uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the last decade, I have downstairs in, in nice affordable form that I can be signing for people. Uh, and again, that's terrific. And uh, you know, we'll see if they, we'll see what gets used in movies. We'll see what gets used in TV shows. That, that, we'll see. Great, thanks a lot. Sure thing. Okay. Other questions? Yes, come on up, come on up. I know you had mentioned like the digital comics and things. And I know personally, that's how I'm getting into mm-hmm. comics. Um, do you know like reputable like ways to buy comics digitally or anything like that? Well, uh, Comixology is the uh, the biggest digital comics uh, supplier. Uh, they were bought several years ago by Amazon. Uh, so, uh, Comixology, if you wanted to publish your own comic book on Comixology, there are pages there that say, "Here's how to do it," uh, and here's what our requirements are. And uh, yeah, they're one of several. 
Uh, and in fact, you don't really have to go with a single publisher if you don't want to. Just like just like writing short stories or eBooks. Uh, you know, I have short stories that I've written that I have posted to Amazon myself as eBooks uh, through the Kindle program that they've got. Uh, so there, there, there are ways like that. What you never want to do is anything where you have to pay somebody else money to produce your work. Um, you know, that was that you will see lots of offers like that. Uh, hey, just give us a hundred hours or a thousand dollars or whatever. And we'll, we'll make sure that your book winds up everywhere. You don't do that. Uh, that there's the uh, Harlan Ellison, um, a, a, a great science fiction writer and somebody who is, uh, I can say was a friend. He, he encouraged me to do writing in comics uh, and, and novels years and years ago, back when I worked for the newspaper, uh, he used to say money should always flow to the writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, uh, this, this stuff would not exist without us. And yes, it wouldn't exist also without the talented artists and the editors and the people that are printing the things and shipping them and everything else. But it's got, it begins one place. And if it's your idea and you created it, you need to make sure that you're making something from it. Thank you. Very cool. All right, yeah, and, and that uh, I know Ellison was militant about that. Oh, like, you pay the writer. A, very yeah. aggressive about he, he it. Has, he has a video on YouTube, and if you don't mind swearing, uh, which you, you, you can't mind swearing if you like Harlan, yeah. uh, it's, it's wonderful because he talks about you know, being charged money for his own work to, mm-hmm. to get a copy of it, and it's like, no, no, it's, don't do that. Right, uh, do we have any other questions? Oh yes, come on up. Uh, yeah, just if you don't mind, yeah, just talk into the microphone so we can get you on the on the show. Hi, my name is Kathy West. I lived for ten years in Stevens Point. Uh-huh. I know Iola, the car <laughs> show, and the com- so I'm just grateful to be here. Although I, okay, I'm 72. Mm-hmm. I love the first Star Wars, and I'm not all into all of these new things. But yeah. over the last while, I've gone to the library. I am so, there's a book here where you did not get any money for, mm. and I believe you, you know, but I am oh. so impressed with, from a certain point of view, Okay, yeah. Um, and just to say, it's this, I would like you to talk about it, I've just okay. read the right, and I am so impressed, and I'm wondering, where do you get the names for all of these weapons and things <laughs> that, you know, are so wonderful? Well, this is, this is, uh, this is fun. Uh, this is a, this is a book uh, that we did last year for the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, uh, from a certain point of view, these are all stories that... Uh, take place sort of in between the moments of Star Wars, the original New Hope movie. Uh, and uh, they approached me and 41 other authors uh, to uh, pick the stories we wanted to tell. Uh, and, uh, and these are about these sort of side characters that are in the story. Uh, and they went to a number of people that had never written stories before for, uh, for uh, Star Wars, uh, as well as some celebrities, as well as some of the people that had written a lot. So, for example, this book has me in it. Uh, it also has uh, Nettie Okorafor, who is here downstairs, uh, or will be as well, in five minutes. So if you want to get this book, uh, I have them for sale. You can get both of our autographs on it, I would hope. Uh, uh, but uh, and, and just say, and you didn't take money for this. No, country, is it, yeah. this is a, this is a charity book for yeah. a literacy group called First Book. Yeah. So yes. It's, so thank you for that, oh, and it's a wonderful collection. Yeah, that, I, I love the. Rights. I make my money on it by selling them. Where did you get those names for the weapons? Just oh, the, oh, the, oh, the, oh, you're you're talking about, for example. Well, uh, what what I did, I wrote sort of a sequel to my Kenobi story. Uh, so I got to write, I got to name the Tuscan Raiders that are actually yes. in Star Wars. That's kind of cool. Yeah. My uh, uh, the in the the movie. Um, uh, some, of the, some of the words came from way back in the day. I mean, they were uh, the names of, for example, the weapons that the, uh, the Tuscan Raiders used uh, are, uh, they, there's, there were two different ones, the Gaderfi, G-A-D-E-R-F-F-I-I, uh, and the Gaffi, which I decided was a, a, a shortening of it, G-A-F-F-I. Uh, one of them came from the back of a Star Wars action figure card. I think that's where Gaffy Stick came from. And Gaderfi came from Alan Dean Foster's ghost-written uh, 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 novelization of Star Wars in 1976. That book actually came out before the movie did. Oh. Uh, so yeah, uh, a lot of these things, uh, in some cases, there are names that already existed. And I go back and I try to find them. In some cases, the names didn't exist. And I try to come up with something that will be easy for people to spell one day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or at least not misspell. Uh, and then there are cases where we will just decide, uh, you know, here's a word that we are just not going to use anymore uh, or something like that. And I'll have to check and see 
uh, what to do. That's one of the things that when we did A New Dawn, uh, what we did is we decided we were going to retire some of the words that just didn't belong in Star Wars anymore uh, uh, because they were confusing. Uh, uh, we, used to, we used the word refresher for bathroom for years, yeah. <laughs> and no one knew what it meant. And we just said, okay, did, let's just... Did you get rid of flimsyplast and stuff uh, like I, that? I, I, I've, see, I tried to stamp a number of things out. The one that I really wanted to stamp out, and I did take it out of New Dawn, uh, was uh, for, uh, for, um, for, uh, the, uh, for the elevators. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 what do they? What, what do they call them? Um, I, I, turbo lifts. Turbo lift. Yeah, yeah, turbo lift. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Turbo lift came from Star Trek. <laughs> I know turbo lift came from Star Trek. Uh, uh, Brian Daly, who wrote the first Han Solo novels, uh, rest in peace. Uh, he got uh, 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 turbo lift in the Han Solo novels, and we were stuck with it for years later. Well, uh, turbo lifts do something different in Star Trek. They're not elevators. They actually go all directions. Uh, and so it's not interchangeable with an elevator. And why not just call it an elevator? Yeah, <laughs> so. There was a bunch of, like, uh, ferrocrete and just, like, all these well, things. Well, th- th- this is something, again, wh- that I talk about when I, I talk about, you know, trying to pretend like you're, mm-hmm. you, you've got credit, you, you, uh, you, you've, got, you've got cred in the universe, uh, trying to pretend like you, 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 you're making it feel like it's science fiction. A lot of this stuff came from the era in the 1950s when they were doing pulp science fiction novels. And so what they wanted to do when they were talking about hey, this is a character that's out in space in the future. They would give everything future crazy names. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me the Edotron. Yeah. Oh, you mean the spoon? <laughs> no, no, the Edotron or whatever it is. Uh, and it was all about trying to make things feel futuristic and feel science fiction-y. Star Wars does not need help to feel otherworldly. Star Wars does not need help like that to feel you know, futuristic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I don't mind it in the case of Turbo List with Star Trek because it really is something else. Mm-hmm. It's not a, it's not an elevator. Um, it, it's, it's actually a, a car that goes up down this, any way you want to go. So anyway, I've had to think about these things way too much and I've had to name a lot of things too. Occasionally they've let me name some really cool things. I got to name the space slugs from Empire Strikes Back. So, uh, so yes, those are exorgoths, which I thought sounded, uh, sounded uh, uh, exogorths or something like that. I can't, I can't remember what it was. I thought it sounded uh, appropriately uh, Lovecraftian. Yeah, so, it does. Um, so thank that's, that's you so much. Sure thank thing. you. Um, I think we might have time for one more question. Anybody wants to ask one more question? Oh, yeah, coming up. I'm just uh, right into the microphone. Hi, how you doing? Um, yeah, it was really interesting to come in and hear you talk. I'm an obsessed fan of sci-fi, mm-hmm. MCU, DC, Star Wars. I love it all. Um, I'm, also, I'm a writer, so um, it was very interesting hearing a lot of things you said. One question I had was um, with you know, all the you know, popularity from all the other sci-fi things, is there any demand um, or you know, warrant for new universes, new material? Oh, yeah. There are 500 comic books coming out every month, and Marvel and DC represent maybe 150 of them. There are more companies the size of IDW, which publishes my Star Wars kids comics. Uh, Battlestar Galactica comes from a company called Dynamite. Uh, there are more, more, more companies on sort of that middle tier uh, than we've ever had. And there's a whole slew of companies that just do one comic book. Well, or, even with sci-fi novels too. Uh, sci-fi novels, it it, it 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 depends on whether you want the physical book or not. If you want physical books and you want to be in Barnes and Noble, then that's a very expensive enterprise, usually involving Random House or one of the big publishers that's out there. Uh, and and you know it it tends to be something where. You need an agent or something like that. I've never had an agent because I, I've always worked with these franchises. Uh, but if I wanted to do it just with my own characters or whatever, I do have a book that I'm going to be doing here shortly uh, where I am going to take that to an agent. Um, but again, you, know, you can publish your own science fiction novel or short story tomorrow on Amazon. Yeah. You just have to format it in the proper format for Kindle. Uh, and you could also put it on all the other platforms that they've got because they've got Nook and iTunes and all these other things. It is easier than ever to get your work out there. Yeah, it well. is. Uh, I will say it's probably better to be a writer, or sorry, better to be an artist than a writer 
in comics mm-hmm. because we need more artists yeah. uh, and they get paid more. <laughs> but yeah. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, so that'll probably have to about wrap it up. Uh, John Jackson Miller, thank you so much for being right. on the show. Thank I'm going to probably have to invite you back at some <laughs> point. There's a lot of other stuff I want to talk about. Thank you. So. Um, I have bookmarks which have my website, farawaypress.com, on them here. I also, uh, as I say, I'll be downstairs uh, signing books uh, and selling books uh, for the next hour or so. Uh, and I do have a panel uh, or a, a slideshow at 1245 downstairs uh, on comics writing, showing how you do a comic script from beginning to end. Uh, and uh, that is something which I think a lot of people will be interested in. Very cool. Thank you again. Uh, thanks again for John Jackson Miller. Thanks again to the Brown County uh, Library Comic Con. This has been serious fun, and uh, we'll see you again a little bit later on today. Thank you all. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgv.edu forward slash podcasts.